0: on the docket with ndcrc the national drug court resource center and i'm your host anna kuzman today on the docket because this is our first episode of the podcast series I want to introduce what the National Drug Court Resource Center is. Then I'll introduce our topic of today's podcast, Family Treatment Courts. Last up on the docket, I sat down with Evan Elkin, the executive director of Reclaiming Futures, to talk more about Family Treatment Courts, and I want to share what I learned with you. But before we begin, a quick note about what some might call our sponsors. Sponsors. This podcast is being brought to you by the Justice Programs Office, a center within the School of Public Affairs at American University, and in part by the Bureau of Justice Assistance, which is housed under the Department of Justice. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of the Justice Programs Office, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, or the Department of Justice. As an easy-to-navigate central hub of treatment court information, the Resource Center will bring together resources from a wide variety of treatment court training and technical assistance providers. I can tell you more about those in a little. The Resource Center also has a searchable map of operational treatment courts around the country, including adult drug courts, juvenile drug treatment courts, veterans' treatment courts, and others. We are working on conducting an annual survey of treatment courts nationwide and will be publishing the results of that survey later on this year. We will also be reviewing relevant and cutting-edge research in the treatment court field and developing an annual drug court review publication. Lastly, we at the Resource Center have curated a searchable database of contemporary evidence-based practices and research findings, along with many operational documents such as policy and procedure manuals. We disseminate a monthly newsletter with a summary of our latest works, including the publications I just mentioned, as well as updates on this podcast, our upcoming webinars, and conferences or events occurring in the treatment court field. The Resource Center serves as that one-stop shop for all your drug court needs and continually updates the field on the latest research on all types of drug courts, which brings me to why we are here today. Family treatment courts are known by many names. Family drug courts, family treatment courts, or even family dependency courts. In 1995, the first family drug court was established in Reno, Nevada. Today, over 300 of these courts exist nationwide. This type of problem-solving court was created in response to the high number of child abuse and neglect cases that involve substance use by a parent or guardian. It has been estimated that between 60 and 80 percent of child abuse and neglect cases involve substance use by a parent or guardian. Participants of adult drug courts are often motivated by the chance to avoid serving a prison sentence and possibly having an offense expunged from their criminal record. However, the incentive for families to participate and complete a family treatment court program is to ensure family reunification. Failure in this type of program could mean the parents or guardians lose their parental rights or guardianship and the children end up in foster care. In addition to family reunification, these programs can benefit society in that they work to reduce criminogenic behavior and recidivism rates. Two other evaluations looked at new criminal arrests records and both reported substantially lower arrest rates for participants of family treatment courts. To explore how these programs operate, the research behind them, and how the court system can positively engage families, I met with Evan Elkin, the Executive Director of Reclaiming Futures, a national public health and youth justice reform organization striving to achieve better health, equity, and justice outcomes for youth. Hello, Evan. Thanks so much for meeting with me. Of course. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm curious to hear more about these programs, Um, but before we begin, can you give our listeners an idea of how you've been able to work with family treatment courts through what you do at Reclaiming Futures?
1: So Reclaiming Futures works with courts across the country uh, to help them bring uh, public health oriented practices, uh, family engagement and community oriented uh, treatment approaches um, into the courtroom. Primarily we work with. Juvenile justice jurisdictions, but many of our sites, and we have uh, 43 sites in 20 states across the country. Uh, many of those sites also have family treatment courts, and I've had an opportunity to discuss the various strategies they use, and some of the overlaps between the approaches that they use, where the adolescent is the respondent in a situation in juvenile court, and in the, and in the family treatment court uh, setting, where the adult is the respondent, and. Uh, um, so we have courts and some judges who preside over both parts. Um, so we've had a lot of contact with, uh, with folks who do uh, um, both strategies.
0: So let's jump into it now. Let's start with the basics. What is a family treatment court?
1: Okay, so a family uh, treatment court sometimes referred to as a family drug court. Um, but I think for the purposes of our conversation, we'll stick to family treatment court. It's, a, it's an intervention that's designed to help abused and neglected children by addressing as a primary focus their parents' substance use issues in in the court context. And uh, it's for family and family court child protection cases typically, but the focus becomes on the family and on the treatment and recovery of the respondent parent in a child welfare situation.
0: I know that there's been a push in the criminal justice community, at least in the problem solving court community, to redefine the term family when discussing any interaction a young person might have with the court system. So I'm curious how you would define family or parent in the context of the courts.
1: Well, I think one of the innovations of the family treatment court has been that they're intentionally flexible in the way that they define family. And, uh, with the intent of being more broad and inclusive and uh, allowing the client or the respondent themselves to take part in defining uh, what is meant by family. I think the, the household unit is probably uh, what you hear most commonly as who gets included, but I think some input from the respondent is, is allowed and, and family members really do need to opt in. So other family members, other adults in the household children who are affected by the parent's substance use. Um, It sort of is uh, part of the process of on-ramping someone into uh, a family treatment court process is this act of kind of defining who's important and who's relevant.
0: And so can you tell us a little bit about why it's important to have a family-centered approach?
1: Well, I think what we've learned from the field over time is that the traditional child welfare oriented approach where there's an allegation and the, the court proceeding is really about discovering and determining the culpability of the parent and in a situation. Um, that a, a more holistic and broader family centered approach is less stigmatizing than this kind of laser focus on on the what uh, of the of the abuse and neglect, but rather kind of celebrates the goals of creating a a healthy family or restoring a family to healthy functioning. So while clearly the starting point um, for a parent's involvement in in a family treatment court is an admission or a finding of abuse and neglect, immediately upon starting the process the lens kind of pulls back and focuses very palpably on the whole family and everyone's needs. Uh, And it's a much more satisfying and less stigmatizing process.
0: I want to get into the topic of the relationship between a parent's substance use disorder on their young person. For system-involved families, what are some of the potential effects of a parental substance use disorders on the young person in in a family?
1: Well, I think um, initially, you know, my response would be that, um, yes, there is research support, and I'll get into that a little bit in a second, but that it just makes incredible intuitive sense uh, to appreciate the complexity of a situation that, uh, you know, that has unfolded to lead to uh, uh, abuse and neglect in a, in a in a family. And so to focus on strengthening that family unit just makes a lot of sense. But that said, you know, there are a lot of findings in the research literature that really validate this idea. Um, one thing and that stands out most prom- prominently is the fact that uh, in most jurisdictions and the research um, on the national scale finds that in a vast majority of abuse and neglect cases substance abuse figures in as a prominent element of the case and so just that alone the, the prevalence and the uh, you know the fact that this substance use co-occurs with abuse and neglect um suggests that we ought to focus on it. It doesn't necessarily imply a causal relationship in every case that the drug use is what's driving the abuse and neglect. But because they seem to co-occur as as problems in a family, it certainly uh, the research tells us we ought to pay attention to this. And it's a, should you know it's a smart thing to make this part of the plan. Another factor that pops out in the research is that adult substance use is strongly correlated. Um, or another way to say that is that it's a risk factor for later substance use among children and adolescents and the mechanism here is not a hundred percent clear, but one thing that we do know is that youth are exposed to substance abusing behavior uh, and, and modeling and the way substance use is communicated about, the way that boundaries are set and established in a family and the way Even uh, the way parents who are abusing substances enforce or don't enforce um, rules in the family about drinking and and using drugs in a family really affect later outcomes uh, for young people. Um, But really the best case that research makes is that uh, this approach produces better outcomes. So that addressing substance use as a primary focus in the court proceeding with parents has produced a lot of really positive outcomes. Shorter times to resolving a case, reaching permanency, increasing rates of family reunification, um, and generally greater treatment success for parents uh, because uh, they are feeling less blamed and like their, their needs for treatment and recovery are taken seriously.
0: So let's say you have a parent or a guardian that has become engaged with the court system due to a child abuse or neglect case. How would the choice be presented to them that they could become a participant in a family treatment court, generally speaking?
1: Well, I think in, in most of the courts around the country that do this, the idea that this is a voluntary engagement is important to the process. Um, so the way it starts in most cases is that um, there has to be uh, a finding. The the uh, respondent has to be found responsible. And, uh, and then the the process is explained and offered to the parent, um, and they voluntarily decide. Voluntarily decide whether to enroll or not. And it's, you know, it it's not an easy decision. It's an intensive process. It involves uh, a lot more frequent court hearings, um, and agreeing to a number of services that are mandated. That if you're not able to follow through or or refuse to do, um, you are in violation of a court order and. Um, and at some risk of uh, a negative outcome in your case, which in the worst scenario means losing your kids. And really that's what this is about. So I think the, uh, the on-ramp in most courts around the country is a voluntary agreement uh, with the understanding of the intensity of what's involved.
0: And what are some of the things that participants are required to do in order to complete the program that you've seen in most programs?
1: Sure. Well, if you're familiar with adult drug treatment court, uh, many of the same sorts of requirements apply in a family treatment court. And uh, it's uh, sequenced in a similar way where the intensity and the numbers of requirements tend to be front-loaded and taper off over time in a kind of phased process. So uh, some of the basics are frequent hearings, frequent uh, uh, requests to show up in court so that the the judge and other team members can monitor your progress, and so they can hear how you're doing, what you're doing. Um, of course, mandated treatment treatment is the the core of this process. If you enroll in a family treatment court, you're agreeing to enter into a uh, treatment process in the community. So the treatment is mandated, and that's a big part of this. Um, in most cases, urinalysis is required to monitor uh, sobriety and. Uh, um, you know, tampering, tampering with that, or refusing to do that, puts a person involved in this process at, at some risk of being uh, terminated or uh, having sanctions. So, an agreement to participate in a process of using incentives and sanctions to kind of, you know, uh, advance their participation along, and uh, and then uh, um, you know, getting getting to a, a satisfactory graduation point.
0: So what would you say the timeline of all of that is? Like on average, how long would a participant spend working to complete a program?
1: Across the country, there's some variation in duration, but I think the median time frame for this whole process is about 12 to 18 months. So a parent agreeing to do this needs to understand up front this is not a quick process that they're committing to uh, at least a year and sometimes a year and a half.
0: So in the little research that is out there about family treatment courts, I've been hearing this term cross-system response. So I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about that and why that's important for the success of these families.
1: Well, if you think about just the basics of of what's going on in a family treatment court, even before the, the innovation of the family treatment court framework, is that this is kind of a joint proceeding Um, and a collaboration between the child welfare agency and the court. That uh, the allegation, the analysis of the situation and the the initial finding of responsibility uh, for the case comes from the child welfare agency and then it proceeds into the courtroom. Um, But the situation is much more uh, complicated than that. There's a lot of other agencies that come to bear. uh, There's the local treatment agency. um, other supports that the family might be uh, needing, homeless services, housing, there's the prosecutor's office. Um, so to successfully uh, implement a treatment court and to, and to really advance a case, there's just a number of different systems that have to cooperate, communicate with each other uh, in order to make this happen.
0: In the juvenile drug treatment court field, there's been this movement to work to engage families in a more positive manner when their young person is involved in the criminal justice system. So I'm curious um, what your suggestions, strategies, or recommendations are for family treatment courts, and I suppose courts in general that are working to do this.
1: Well, I think this has been, you know, kind of the kind of the challenge for courts of all kinds. And uh, you know this is true of family court, of juvenile treatment court is this challenge of making the process accessible and relevant and, you know, easy for families to, to wrap their their minds and their schedules around. So one of the things that sites have really determined, Uh, increase family engagement, which seems deceptively simple, is just to be flexible with time and to recognize that these are families who, you know, have complicated schedules. They have a lot going on. They may not be, you know, the fact that they're involved in a, a situation like this is probably an indicator that their lives are not as well coordinated as you might assume. So assuming that uh, people can show up on time every time and stick to a schedule is a tall order for some families. And the other thing is your assumptions about who these families are who who get into uh, situations like this and end up enrolling in a family treatment court. we may assume that they're not employed or don't have busy schedules and I think that that's uh, that that's something um, that isn't often true for families so to be flexible and work around people's schedules and um, if someone doesn't show up and you know for an appointed time to be willing to see them an hour later when they do show up or an hour earlier when they do show up so a lot of courts that we spoke to have uh, found that just by simply being more flexible um, goes a long way in family engagement Um, and the other thing that i think is uh, maybe intuitive and goes without saying is that just this attitude that this process is about your family and not about you and that you're not in the hot seat and we're not judging you that this is really genuinely about trying to help you and your family um, you know strengthen and function better is a more welcoming um, attitude than an attitude of investigation and trying to uncover you know the the facts um, about a, an abuse or a neglect situation. So just the shift in in attitude and and just the family frame makes it more welcoming. Um, some other things that sites have tried are using uh, parents who have been through the system. It's you know it's kind of a daunting and uh, you know difficult thing to suddenly have you know a whole bunch of requirements and things to show up for and unfamiliar experiences and relationships many have never dealt with a lawyer or the system or been in treatment. So having parents who have been through the the process before serving as advocates and supports and to help them navigate the system has been a a very effective parent engagement tool at at many sites.
0: I've also read a little bit about some guidelines or standards that family treatment courts are held to. Um, And I know that adult drug courts and now juvenile drug treatment courts, they have these standards or guidelines that they're supposed to adhere to. So um, can you speak at all about any of guidelines or standards that family treatment courts are now held to? Well,
1: I think the answer to that is that there is variation across the country and different states have different requirements for certifying uh, family treatment courts. There are guidelines that were developed by the Children and Family Futures organization um, that guide the practice. Um, and they have a, a cohort, uh, kind of a learning community and a, a peer teaching community of courts who are uh, adhere well to a set of uh, you know, positive guidelines that serve as kind of, a, um, kind of teachers and standard bearers for the rest of the field. Um, but each state has its own uh, approach to certifying courts. It may be the Supreme Court has a set of standards where they may uh, ask for an uh, a operations manual and policies and procedures and may conduct a court observation to determine whether someone is adhering to the principles of family treatment court. Um, and other states uh, may not have a certification process at all. Um, and it's in those places, it's unofficial and um, it's, you know, up to the up to the court to engage with the resources and the, other, the community of other treatment courts to make sure that they're practicing at a high standard.
0: So through some of the sites that you've been able to connect with through Reclaiming Futures, can you tell us about any interesting things that family treatment court programs are doing, any case studies, lessons learned, challenges?
1: sure i I had an opportunity to speak to a couple of courts recently and i'll I'll start with kind of an outlier example Uh, one of our sites in uh, northwest ohio for example has uh, taken their family treatment court um, in a slightly hybrid direction and they have this is an example of a of a court that does have a state supreme court certification and their practices you know, con- considered to be adherent to the standards of family treatment court, but more than half of the cases that they take, the uh, there is an adolescent who is the respondent and the sort of identified client and starting point for the family treatment court um, interaction. So this this would be a kid who is uh, found responsible in juvenile treatment court for. Say uh you know, a felony assault charge or something of that nature, um, who is also determined to have a significant treatment need, and in that case uh, where it is determined through a family assessment that there is also substance use or the risk of uh, neglect and abuse in that family, the entire family is then enrolled in a in a process. But really with the kid as the starting point, and this is probably an atypical example. Uh, for the country, um, but a very successful one, and uh, um, most other courts are largely civil proceedings um, and center around an adult parent who is a respondent because of an allegation or a, a finding of abuse and neglect. Um, another another court that kind of stands out because of its uh, its efforts to kind of look look upstream of uh, of the family and look for opportunities to kind of meet what in, in the public health field is referred to, uh, the buzzword is the social determinants of health, those building blocks that keep families together and healthy um, and to start pretty assertively before um, really focusing in on substance use and, and a mandated treatment process to make sure that things like you know housing and entitlements are all stabilized so, um, so a real assertive case management-oriented approach so that uh, a person's life is kind of uh, the things that might undermine uh, even a, a successful treatment engagement, things that might pull the rug out from under something like that are in place before things get too far down the road. So those are just a couple of nice examples.
0: How do you see these programs changing, and how, if at all, do you feel the field or the system will change in response to them? Because I kind of see them as a model for how the courts can be more comprehensive and address other needs, not just the criminogenic ones of someone who is involved in the criminal justice system. Well, I think
1: one thing that we hear, and this goes to my earlier example of our. Of our partner' site in Washington State is the idea that uh, kind of a single focus on the substance use itself misses part of the the critical picture of uh, what is required to to keep families and keep, you know, keep the parent respondent in a situation like this on track, which is, and that means closer partnerships with housing and transitional housing. that many cases, start out with uh, with a homeless family or a family at serious risk of losing housing so I think one of the directions that the field needs to go is a stronger recognition of that partnership um, and those kind of broader social needs that families come into a process like this so that so that they're not blamed for uh, you know the impact that those things will have on their on their later success um, another thing that you hear which I think there's significant room for improvement uh, and innovation and it may just be strategies for better engagement is that families tend not to enroll, voluntarily enroll until they feel a certain amount of heat and so cases tend to progress a little further down down the road than they need to before a family will enroll in this process and it may be um, that they need to feel, you know, at more significant risk of losing their kids before they enroll in something like this, or that the message needs to be made clearer that this is, in fact, a much more supportive and less punitive uh, intervention that, that actually gives the family a greater likelihood of achieving their goal of reunification. And so I think. Uh, without moving ahead of adjudication or of a finding, to move further upstream and better strategies for uh, communicating transparently to families um, what, what the goals are that uh, um, get them started earlier and, and, you know, better chance of success.
0: Evan, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. It was great to be here. Thanks, Anna.
0: For more resources on Family Treatment Courts, please visit Children and Family Futures at www.cffutures.org. I also want to encourage you to check out the National Drug Court Resource Center website at ndcrc.org if you're looking for any resources on problem-solving courts. For more information on juvenile drug treatment courts, please visit au-jdtc.org. Please also check out Evan's organization, Reclaiming Futures, by visiting their website at reclaimingfutures.org. Many thanks to Evan Elkin and Reclaiming Futures for sharing all of his knowledge on this topic and his passion for bettering the lives of justice-involved youth. You do important work, and we can't thank you enough. If you have any of your own stories about family treatment courts or adult drug courts, you can email us at ndcrc at american.edu or tweet at us at the ndcrc. We'd love to hear from you. Be on the lookout for our next episodes of On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center, where we will be meeting with a practitioner who works in a family treatment court and a participant who has graduated from a family treatment court, like the ones we discussed today. You can download those episodes through the iTunes podcast store or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find them on the NDCRC website. Neither the U.S. Department of Justice nor any of its components operate control, are responsible for, or necessarily endorse this podcast or the National Drug Court Resource Center website, including, without limitation, its content, technical infrastructure and policies, and any services or tools provided. Podcast artwork by me, Anna Kuzman. Mixing and editing, also by me, Anna Kuzman. Technical support by Kelsey Murphy. Title credit by Jenna Forrester.